Welcome to Narrow Way to Broadway, a podcast for people of faith with a passion for the arts. Each episode is designed for the thespian and non-thespian and the believer and non-believer alike, navigating topics affecting the hearts, minds, and homes of artists everywhere. Enjoy the show. Hello, hello, Narrowway to Broadway. This is Emma, and I'm so pumped to have my new friend, Kevin Carlock, on the show. So Kevin and I met, like, we're basically online friends from both being podcasters, and I'll I'll let him tell the story or I'll let him talk about himself because I typically give an intro and don't let people, like, give their own intro. So, okay, say hi to the people, Kevin. Hey. Um, hey, <laughs> love it. Okay, guys. So Kevin has a podcast called Jesus in Movies. So if you are interested in our podcast, Narrow Way to Broadway, because of the film and TV guests that we typically have on, you should definitely t- uh, check out Jesus in Movies because it is so great. It's so theologically rich and I've really loved listening to it. You might even hear a friendly voice on there if you listen to a certain episode that's come out recently. So um, anyway, enough about me. Kevin, hi. How are you? What's up, Nuebue fans? I'm so happy to be here. Thanks for having me. Nuebue. I love that. (laughs) No Um, Okay, amazing. So Kevin, I think one one reason why we love doing these talkbacks is having people who aren't like a part of the theater industry to get up and share with us about like biblical themes in these you know pieces which is exactly why we started this kind of episode so you have sort of an interesting story in that you sort of fell in love with art or i guess movies a little bit later than maybe some of us did so give the people a little bit of a background on that transition yeah, so I'm definitely the aforementioned non-thespian, and mm-hmm. I went to college to play golf. Uh, I went to school at Davidson College in North Carolina. I graduated in 2019, so I'm 25, and it was my sophomore year studying for a macroeconomics exam, and my friends coerced me to watch Harry Potter and the Sorcerer's Stone, and I had avoided summer reading like the plague growing up, trying to play sports all the time, and it rocked my world, Emma. I watched the next seven movies the next three days, and I read all the books that summer. And it was like the first time that I had ever been in love with a story. Uh, specifically, I would say Hermione Granger was a really compelling character to me. She convinced me of the value of reading and resourcefulness, but also that it could be fun. Um, and that's props to JK Rowling, I guess. And then I think the relationship between Harry and Hermione kind of reminded me of my relationship with God. And so it was just adding kind of nuance to how I saw Christianity and the gospel. And specifically, uh, God is more of a horizontal friend type figure as opposed to more of like omnipotent, sovereign, uh, just those types of attributes. So um, Harry Potter in a weird way made God feel smaller and more accessible to me and helped me to feel about the gospel the way I wanted to feel, but didn't. And so that was kind of the floodgates of storytelling. I started taking English classes and uh, hanging out with people who looked and talked and thought very differently than I did. And that was like a really cool experience. And so I moved to LA after graduating. I love it. And you, cause you're a screenwriter. So Tell maybe give a little bit of background on so you made this transition in college from studying like something very left brainy to 
studying English and then wanting to dive into screenwriting. So I know that you do that full-time now, but actually maybe give us just like a, a high level after graduating um, like journey for you because you moved to LA, but you're not in LA anymore. So tell us a little bit about that. Right. So I started asking everybody, like, how do you get into movies? And I didn't know if I wanted to write or direct or produce or be on the studio side. I was just kind of doing a lot of internet research. But uh, if you know anything about the film industry, it's it evolves a lot and it's kind of closed doors. It can be kind of hard to figure out how things work. So a lot of people pointed to or pointed me to the big agencies and specifically starting in the mailroom as sort of a way that you could see how the different facets of the industry interact with each other. And you can meet a lot of people your age. And then you can sort of get this resume gold star without climbing a specific ladder that you don't know you want to climb yet. And so I started at Creative Artists Agency, CAA. Uh, they call the office the Death Star. I definitely felt like I was working for the the big baddies. Um, but I was mm-hmm. just an, I was a minnow. Um in the shark tank and then it went remote. And so I came back home uh, to Greensboro, North Carolina. And then once it looked like it was going to be a while down to Charlotte, which I love and that's where I am now and uh, worked remotely for them for about a year. But COVID was kind of the nudge to start writing because I had more time than I did when I was in LA. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Okay, cool. So, so you're not a thespian, right? But you no. are very familiar with the, you know, the film and TV industry doing working at Creative Arts Agency and now doing screenwriting. So you do people, if you're doubting his qualifications to be on our podcast, know that he is more than welcome and more than qualified to be chatting about movies on a podcast. So, okay, friends, our topic of discussion today is drumroll please, La La Land, which is so fun because I forgot how much I really loved this movie. The um, director and screenwriter was Damien Chazelle and the composer and lyricist Justin Hurwitz, which I just found out that they were actually roommates in college, which I think is so fun and reminds me of uh, you and Graham. Graham is uh, Kevin's co-host on Jesus and Movies. But so how this is sort of going to work. So in in previous talkbacks, our, our guests – that are with us. We've watched the piece together, but because I'm in Chicago and Kevin is in Charlotte, we're we watched La La Land separately and we're going to go moment for moment talking about different things. So he hasn't seen my outline, I haven't seen his outline. We honestly could have the same moments. We might have things that we didn't even think about. So this is going to be a little bit new way of doing things, but it'll be very fun. So, Kevin, I'm going to let you start us out Give me a moment. Give me something you want to talk about from this movie. So my first moment is when Mia and Sebastian are having dinner. And Mm. it's kind of a little bit later on. And it's one of those scenes where it starts off positive and arcs towards negative. And so by the end of the scene, Mia and Sebastian are really at odds. But I want to kind of try to go specific here so that it'll be memorable and hone hone in on this kind of one interaction where... Sebastian's kind of doubting, like he's he's starting to run with the band, more of the commercial route instead of his passionate jazz route. And he says, no one likes jazz, not even you. And Mia comes back with, I do like jazz now because of you. And then a little bit later, Mia says, people will want to go to it, talking about his club, Chicken on a Stick. Uh, people will want to go to it because you're passionate about it. And people love what other people are passionate about. You remind people of what they've forgotten. And so it kind of harkens back to the scene of Mia and Sebastian at the jazz club where Mia has initially said on the studio lot, you know, I don't really like jazz. 
And it's kind of funny how he gets sort of offended and he's sort of like, I just, I think people don't really understand what they're saying when they say they don't like jazz. And he takes her to that club and he gives her this like rousing speech about why it's new every night and it's great and it's artistic. And it just, you feel the passion just like oozing out of him. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I guess this kind of reminded me of the gospel. I'm going to kind of affirm and critique, which is something that Graham and I like to do instead of wholeheartedly mm-hmm. condemn or endorse. So um I guess my affirm is that I think we're probably more effective in ministry or in sharing the gospel, you know, one-on-one when we're sincere and we're passionate about why the gospel is attractive and life-giving. Like if people can't see why you want what you have, then why should they want it? And kind of my uh, conceptual or like heady verses for this would be 1 Peter 3.15. Maybe you've heard this one, but in your art, hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for the reason for the hope that is in you, yet mm-hmm. do it with gentleness and respect. So we want to be able to like give a reason for why we believe in Jesus. And then the other one, 2 Corinthians 2.15-17, for we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. It's like the aroma, like the scent, like, you know, when you're around a certain person and you can just sort of like feel that they have like a certain type of love or, or attitude about them that is distinct. Mm-hmm. Um, there's like a call to be kind of like that aroma. And then because as lovers of theater and stories, uh, we believe that like sometimes stories resonate more than facts. I'm going to mm-hmm. try to, I'm really trying to make an argument here. I'm going to try to convince you through two instances. One is Jesus's teaching Luke two forty six through 47. This is when he gets stuck in the temple when he's a little kid. Uh, Luke writes, after three days, they found Jesus in the temple, sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking questions. And all who heard Jesus were amazed at his understanding and his answers. Uh, And so it's kind of this amazing picture of like young Jesus is like already like teaching with great authority and it's compelling and it's attractive. Um, And Mm -hmm. so I think that's a cool picture of how this is done well, even though Luke doesn't give us a lot of details. But then maybe it feels more like this in actuality, Acts 17, 32 to 34. I promise there's a there's a method to the madness of all these verses. So this is Paul preaching at the Areopagus in Athens to some of the more um, highbrow like philosophers and and people that would have been more prominent in society. Mm -hmm. Now, when these people heard the resurrection of the dead, some mocked. But others said, we'll hear from you about this again. So Paul went out from their midst, but some men joined in him and believed, among whom also were Dionysius the Areopagite and a woman named Damaris and others with him. And so Paul's just given this long spiel, public speech, and we see that like some people mock him. Some people say, we'll hear you again on this. And, you know, maybe there's kind of a lukewarmity there, or maybe it's just like added to the list of new ideas and themes of the day like it doesn't really seem to hit home but then some people mm-hmm. do believe and so i guess all of this is like big picture to sort of say that um if we can really like think critically about why we believe the gospel is true or even why we don't it helps us to get more honest about the ways that we can grow and the ways that we can share it with others and it helps us to do so with more compassion and more nuance um so that's my firm. And so here's my critique. If you're anything like me, maybe you just heard that and you're sort of like, well, I don't know that I'm up to the task. Like I don't think I can give a reason uh for why I believe in Jesus like you can or like Tim Keller can or somebody. And so my critique is that it's not sin to not be passionate or excited or articulate about the gospel and its historicity or its attractiveness. God is promising to sanctify us and to help us and to use a spirit to wrap our feelings around truth and not the other way around. And if you doubt that promise, like let's just look at Romans eight. Um, This is like one of the most 
profound promises in the entire Bible. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose, and maybe a lot of times the quote ends there, but I'm going to keep going. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. A lot of big words there, but what I'm trying to argue is that like, just as justification is by grace, like you were saved by what Jesus did on the cross, not by your own doing sanctification or like being made more like God is also by grace. It's not by works. And so like, this is scriptural promise that God is going to help you feel the way about the gospel and help you defend it better over time. And that's not like a burden that we have to bear. And David is one of like the great heroes of the Old Testament. And look how he kind of models this. Like after he slept with Bathsheba, committed this egregious uh, adultery that is like kind of shocking to anyone who's been following his life. Nathan, the prophet, comes to confront him, tells him a story and says, you are the man. Like you've done this terrible thing. And David seemingly kind of emotionlessly says, I have sinned against the Lord. And like, that's it. And it's not for a long time that he'll write the famous Psalm 51 where there's like, beautiful contrite language about just how deeply he feels it but like he doesn't really feel it initially and so i guess um i I just love this moment because with mia and sebastian like he's been so passionate about jazz but his feelings kind of wane and here he kind of gives into them and mia is sort of reminding him um something you've talked about on nuevo is like reminding Israel of where they've been and how God has been faithful in the past. She's kind of reminding him of his passion and and how that passion is so helpful and necessary to other people seeing jazz similarly. And that can be kind of something that we apply to our spiritual lives, I think. Yeah, I think that's true. What was the original, what was the exact like portion of dialogue that they had that you referenced? So he is like doubting that he should do the chicken on the stick thing, his club right. that he's wanted to start. He says, no one likes jazz, not even you. And she's like, I do like jazz now because of you. Like you, your mm-hmm. passion flowed to me. And this is the great line right here. People will want to go to it because you're passionate about it. And people love what other people are passionate about. You remind them of what they've forgotten. And this doesn't only just apply to the gospel. I think this could apply to the local church. Like in 2022 America, mm-hmm. church going is a tough sell and like nobody wants to go. But if you can like be sincere and convey why Mm -hmm. this is not only meaningful, but um, deeply connected to like the purpose of our lives and something that God Mm -hmm. has asked of us and the way that he promises Mm -hmm. to grow us. If you can like defend why church is important to someone, again, with gentleness and patience, like that passion can really flow into someone else and they can have a big difference on them. Right. Or, Or just embody it. I think that what that conversation epitomizes in a lot of ways is this tension between the like tradition and the appeal of something in its historical context and then how that you know context ages and i think that that reminds me of the moment too which is um which is interesting because this is one that i had written down is like so so there's a moment where what's the guy's name keith where keith aka john legend who i totally forgot was in this movie which i'm like great um he says to Sebastian, um, how are you going to be revolutionary when you're such a traditionalist? You hold on to the past, but jazz is about the future. So this is going to be more, I think I don't have like a critique or an affirmation of this. I think that I was thinking about this though, in relation to the gospel, like if let's, let's say you take, 
um, there's there's this nuance here, and I think that there's this tension here that I want to discuss because there's this balance of making something accessible, but also maintaining the integrity of like the thing itself. So this is sort of existential. So like, bear with me here. So let's say we like replace that line as though someone said it to like us when talking about the gospel, when they say, um, how are you going to be revolutionary when you're such a traditionalist? You hold on to the past, but the gospel is about the future or even the gospel is about the present. Like when Sebastian starts playing in this new band, right? He's They're taking jazz and they're kind of changing it and making it more appealing to a modern audience, which I think, like you said, applies to the modern church in a lot of ways is like, I think we've grown mistrusting of the gospel and the good news being able to like speak for itself and be appealing and um, sanctifying itself. So we try to take the thing, we try to take the thing rooted in like historical context and rooted in beauty and tradition. And we try to change it to make it more accessible, which is exactly how Sebastian finds himself in this like pseudo jazz funk background dancers band. And that's why he's not fulfilled. Not to, not to say that if like you're at a church that's like more modern, that means you're not, you know, that's right. not the gospel because it's it's still the good news. But it's like, when does it get to the point where we're like repackaging the good news in so many different ways? Like, is that is that even jazz anymore? Is that even church anymore? Is that even the gospel anymore? So I think that's actually like a question I would want to pose, you know, in regards to like our, our lens of watching, you know, Christianity is like – or is being Christians is Sebastian is like all about jazz because he's like jazz is – he says something about um, wanting to open the jazz club because he says we'll play whatever we want with whoever we want, anytime we want, as long as it's pure jazz. And part of me thinks it connects to what you just said about um, Mia saying people are going to want to um, listen to it because you are passionate about it. So. I don't know. I don't know if you have any thoughts about anything I just said, Kevin, if that relates yeah. to kind of your angle. Yeah. Like what, what are your thoughts there? No, I love that. I mean, that's, some, it's very in right now to critique the past because there is a lot of wrongdoing in our past. Um, you know, broadly speaking, like, uh, mm -hmm. and politics have been all about that lately. And so we kind of mm -hmm. are living in this like post Christian era where we're sort of trying to kind of deconstruct everything. And so, I guess where I get nervous is when we feel like we have to do the Jesus and like, we feel like we have to dress something up to make it attractive. And like C.S. Lewis kind of famously said, like, I would no sooner defend the Bible than I would defend a roaring lion. And the same is really true of Jesus. Like he doesn't need to be buttered up or beaten around the, like this, the spirit is going to work. Um, and so is the church because uh, God has promised that it will. Um, yeah. And yeah, there certainly is a huge spectrum question there of like how much should the church try to change to reach people versus how much do we just let the bible and the way that we've done things kind of speak for themselves so mm -hmm. i don't really right. have big answers there i think that's a huge conversation right well and i think it's one of those things of do we change as the church like you just said how much do we change to reach people versus allow the church to be the means through which people change because of the truth of just the gospel, just plain and simple, plain, like he says, like pure gospel. Um, so that's just like something I've been wondering recently. And I think that that, that added to it 
Because it's like jazz, when you think about jazz, you think about like, of course, a certain like chord progression. There's jazz chords in music. There's jazz composers. There's modern jazz composers. It's not, it is not stuck in, you know, the jazz age, just like the good news of Jesus isn't stuck in, you know, be, you know, AD time, like where Jesus has just died and it's the early church in Acts. But how do we interact with something that kind of by definition represents a contextual like thing that still applies to us, but is it jazz anymore? Is it the gospel anymore when it's like modern jazz or the modern gospel? I don't know. I, I actually don't know. So that's kind of one thing. I guess that's one of the, the moments that I wanted to talk about too was – yeah, like what is, I guess, what makes something pure jazz or what makes something the simple gospel? So it's really about like what makes jazz jazz? Yeah, it's like what – yeah, like what makes jazz jazz or what makes gospel the gospel? And like when Sebastian took – like was this a jazz band? Like I don't know. I don't know. I also don't know if that's like too existential of a question. But I just kept thinking about him saying as long as it's pure jazz and then he finds himself compromising the purity of jazz through like something that's not necessarily untrue or – um bad, but it's just not what he set out to do, I suppose. Yeah. And I think when we draw the parallel to Christianity and what makes the gospel the gospel, the big question is like, who gets to decide? Like who gets to decide what the church should be? Um, mm. And like the second you stray from scripture, I think it starts to get very finicky. Like if you start, if you point to history and say like, this is how we know the gospel is true. Or if you point to science, this is how we know that we can rely on Genesis. Like all of a sudden those things become the measuring stick by which truth is assessed. And so right. really the only answer that like holds up is no, no, the Bible is true because God says it's true. And therefore the gospel is true first and mm -hmm. foremost, because God says it's true. I don't really know if that parallel is relevant yeah. to what you were saying, but that's maybe what I think of when I think of how do we know jazz is jazz? Right. Yeah, for sure. Um, yeah, I think that's true. Um, okay, Kevin, point number two from you, my friend. Okay, let's get musical with lyrics from the song The Fools Who Dream, which is Mia's Fantastic. audition song. Yes. Um, and so I kind of want to just read some of the lyrics here and then I'll, I'll hone in on them. She opens up, she says, my aunt used to live in Paris. I remember she used to come home and tell us these stories about being abroad. And I remember she told us that she jumped into the river once barefoot. And then Mia starts to kind of sing a little bit. She smiled, left without looking, and tumbled into the Seine. The water was freezing. She spent a month sneezing, but said she would do it again. Here's to the ones who dream, simple as though they may seem. Here's to the ones who dream, foolish as they may seem. Here's to the hearts that ache. Here's to the mess we make. Um, and so I kind of want to like zoom in on the pain and the payoff of that first verse left without looking tumbled into the sand the water was freezing she spent a month sneezing but said she'd do it again i think that really hit home for me not just because of professionally what i'm trying to do which feels a little bit like one in a million but just being a christian i think it feels like this kind of persecution inducing like suffering inviting life but you would do it again um mm -hmm. and i 
here's some scripture. So again, I'm going to split between conceptual and then story. So the conceptual starting you with Matthew 10, 16 to 22, this is a pretty long passage where Jesus is basically saying like, if you're going to follow me, it's, it's going to be tough. Behold, I'm sending you out as sheep into the midst of wolves. So be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. Beware of men, for they will deliver you over to the courts and flog you in their synagogues. And you will be dragged before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them and the Gentiles. When they deliver you over, don't be anxious how you're going to speak or what you're going to say, for you are to say what will be given to you in that hour. For it's not you who speak, but the spirit of your father speaking through you. Brother will deliver brother over to death and the father is child. And children will rise against parents and have them put to death. And you will be hated by all for my name's sake, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. So I know that was long. And then maybe this is a more summarizing point of that. Uh, five chapters earlier in Matthew um, from the Sermon on the Mount, the Beatitudes, verses 11 and 12. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. So this is like, pretty harsh language right about what it's going right. to look like to be a christian and i i'm kind of convicted that it's like man i haven't really felt a lot of that persecution lately maybe i'm not really in the arena enough and i think that would be a pushback i would have if you feel like um you've never really taken some heat for being a christian or brushed shoulders with someone you know i don't i don't think the call is to be antagonizing but like when you sincerely follow jesus you're gonna be different from those around you um so you know we want to be salt and light of the earth and we want to be love and compassion and we want to be the person that can explain this is what's so great about jazz like this is why this is attractive mm -hmm. and not sort of domineering but at the same mm -hmm. time like i think we should expect some pushback and that's the case on a story level in the bible so this is uh john 21 18 through 19 jesus talking to peter after his resurrection jesus's resurrection truly truly i say to you when you were young you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted but when you're old, you will stretch out your hands and another will dress you and carry you where you don't want to go. This he said to show about what kind of death Peter was to glorify God. And after saying this, Jesus said to Peter, follow me. And so this is Jesus prophesying that Peter is going to be crucified. And we know that 11 out of the 12 disciples are martyred right. for their faith. And so I think right. like this is something that we're blessed to not in all likelihood have to deal with in 2022 America. But um I don't know. I, it just, it makes me think like signing up for Christianity. Why do I expect it to not come with a cost? Like to mm -hmm. pick up your cross and follow Jesus is something that is, is costly. And mm -hmm. this is the big turn here, Emma, because even though I think these lines tumbled into the sand, the water was freezing. She spent a month sneezing, but said she'd do it again. It's compelling because it's my story, but you know, the deeper reason why this rings true is because nobody understands both conceptually and experientially that persecution and loneliness and suffering more than Jesus. Like this is God's mm -hmm. story. Um, Isaiah 53 is just a fireworks passage and I would beg you to read it on your own time, but I'm just going to give you verses three to six. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and yet we esteemed him not. Surely he's borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned every one to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. That's just like a moving passage to me about how yeah. Jesus um, is the one who's ultimately saying, uh, 
I, the water was freezing. Jesus spent a month sneezing, but he looked at me with tears in his eyes and said, I would do it again and again and again and again and again and again. Um, Mm -hmm. So here's to the hearts that ache and here's to the mess we make because our savior would do it again and again and again, even if we were the only one who would believe. Yeah. Yeah. That's, yeah. I mean, it's so beautiful. And I think that, I think that kind of where that applies, uh, I mean, it applies to everything and forever it will, but I think a way that it kind of relates to the, the previous two points was like, I think sometimes there's this like, um, attempt to sell Christianity and sell a life with Jesus through like a true like tabloid magazine approach of like Christians we're just like you we go to the grocery store we have we also have pain and we also have joy but in, I think that there's this like fear to be set apart and then I think that there are probably a lot of people who find themselves like quote unquote, giving their life to Jesus, having a mountaintop moment, and then 10 years down the road facing something really, really painful. And maybe, maybe thinking, wait, I thought like, I thought this was supposed to be easy now. Like I thought that a life with Jesus, because someone told them was, was like, yes, like have a life with Jesus and your all your troubles will go away. Like you will, you will find fulfillment. You will find anything that you need. Kind of like selling a life with Jesus, as though this—it's like this fix your life, patch up everything here on earth kind of moment. But instead, it's confusing because then we get—you know—people get ten years down the road and they're like, "I don't know what I signed up for." And I think that that's kind of the thing is um, that's where the weight of following Jesus comes in, and that's where the sacrifice of following Jesus comes in like if you ever talk to somebody who's who's older and has been following Jesus for a long time the peace and the joy with which they talk about their life is truly like single-handedly like such a testament of of Jesus and his and his love for us but also they are not foreign to trial um and i think that that's what's interesting about what she says about like jumping into the river without without looking. I think that sometimes we find ourselves um, maybe selling Jesus as though like, just close your eyes and jump in and like all your troubles will go away. But it's like, no, like the point is that she she came out of the river, was like, oh, I'm sick now. Like, oh, I'm sick. I'm sneezing. I'm not doing well. And then she says, I do it again despite that. Not like, oh, I jumped into the river and it cured me. And now my life is perfect, so I do it again. It's like I I jumped in without looking. I got sick. I realized I was sick, and I would do it again. Um, so I think that there's like a parallel too to not only Jesus dying for us again and allowing Himself to be a sacrifice for our sins again, but there's also a world in which we in the Christian life kind of follow that parallel as well. Yeah, I think that's great. I kind of have two thoughts. One is I think you've made subtly a great critique of this kind of nugget, which is that maybe the leaping without looking isn't the way that we should be doing this. Like maybe Mm -hmm. Mia's grandmother is not really paralleling the way that we should do ministry. Like I think that the more mature we get, the better we are at sort of saying, you know, this isn't going to be sunshine and rainbows. Like if if you're Mm -hmm. thinking about becoming a Christian, you should expect – this is going to change every facet of your life and it's going to be for the better, but it's not going to be for the happier necessarily. Um, mm-hmm. There's mm-hmm. sort of this like societal 
trend right now to kind of avoid suffering at all costs. Um, this very individualistic, like do what makes you happy. I even think about like the medical field, how like the goal is to alleviate pain really and prolong life as long mm -hmm. as it can. And like, mm -hmm. I don't know, I, I think about my own life and some of the most rich memories I have are, are kind of the sadder ones. I don't know if you've ever seen the movie inside out, yeah. but I think that really hits home for me. And, um, like empirically at our own lives and the lives of those around us, think about examples like childbearing where like it in the moment, maybe one of the most miserable, painful processes that there is. And yet moms uh, like readily, eagerly do it again and again, mm -hmm. and it becomes like such a gift. So mm -hmm. I don't know, I guess I would push back on our culture's ideas that uh, sadness and pain and persecution are, are ultimate evils. Right. Yes. Yes. Right. I mean, Jesus was literally called the suffering servant. We just heard you recite so much scripture that attests to the life that Jesus was. I think, and I think what's scary, and I don't know if you've experienced this at all, Kevin, but I'm sure you have walking with God, but it is a scary prayer to pray like, God, make me more like your son and make me more like Jesus because that's what we're, you know, that's essentially learning to be more like Jesus often is accompanied by a lot of suffering. Like I have so many memories where – and it sounds cliche, but I think that the older I get, the more these like cliche things that wise Christians who are older than me once said to me start to feel much more true, which is one of them being the most like painful moments of your life will be the most – the the moments where you will hear the spirit most clearly and that's this isn't always true and i'm not saying like be scared but you know i just have distinct memories of just walking to work one day and just being like god i i am in so much pain like i need i need your help and that was because the lord in his sanctifying of me does not allow me to just to purely be protected from like pain or suffering he actually uses it in like a really beautiful way, just like he did with, you know, just like Jesus lived. And and what an honor that we get to align ourselves with Jesus in some ways um, through like our own suffering. Totally. And I would even go one step further and maybe I'm kind of unknowingly taking it. Well, I'm knowingly taking a theological stance here, but I would say if you look <laughs> at that Romans eight twenty nine, like even if you're not going to ask to be more like Jesus, he's going to make you more like Jesus. And so you can kind mm -hmm. of expect this to happen whether you want it or not. And that can right. be a scary thing too. Um, mm -hmm. But also there's kind of, this is what made my like one uh, caveat of this award, which is that, or this nugget, we call them awards on the Jesus movies podcast, but uh, <laughs> is that like, I get that people aren't being martyred for their faith in Jesus in America in 2022, but God is uh God big and small. Like if it's just like a passing comment or a glare right. from a friend that was unexpected, like that is persecution and Jesus feels that. Um, mm -hmm. And like that is a place where you can be honest with Jesus and really intimate in a, in a really small way. And those mm -hmm. moments mean uh, that that means something later down the road. And um, mm -hmm. that those are like the building blocks on which relationships are built just as they are between humans. Yeah. Right. Well, yeah. And I think too, it's, it's like one of those things of considering it pure joy, like he says, um, when you face trials of many kinds and, and it's almost, yeah, like I, I don't really know what that's like. Like I want to get to the point where, you know, uh, 
a sideways look or a passing passive aggressive comment, I can consider it pure joy because at this point, like I definitely don't consider it pure joy. I consider it like I'm like, oh my gosh, someone hates me and I'm utterly crushed. Um, but I think, yeah, like you said, that that is something that we can go to the Lord with and not even necessarily say take it away, but just say like, Lord, can you hold this with me and for me as I learn to be more like your son? Totally. And I'll be the first to tell you, it never feels like pure joy to me. And I don't even feel Mm -hmm. like I really believe Jesus when he says, you will be blessed for this persecution, Mm -hmm. like in Matthew 5. I'm totally thinking this sucks, like especially Mm -hmm. when I'm trying to do the entertainment film stuff and networking with the LA folks. I feel like Mm -hmm. the second I'm found out as a Christian, I'm on the losing side of every argument. And I'm just such a Mm -hmm. joke intellectually Mm -hmm. and professionally. And uh, that's just part of the cost. And kind of like what we talked about with jazz and Sebastian's club, like uh, feelings like truth should lead feelings, not the other way around. And so sometimes Mm -hmm. we don't feel like rejoicing in the sufferings or consider it pure joy, but that's okay. Like God is governing our feelings and he's going to sanctify them over time. And I think about Christoph's line in, or Sven's line to Christoph in Frozen 2, where he says, you feel Mm -hmm. what you feel and those feelings are real. Come on, Christoph, let down your guard. And that's what Jesus Mm -hmm. is saying to us. Like, you can be Mm -hmm. honest with me. If, if being a Christian feels costly for your job or for your friends or for your family, whether it's a level 10 martyrdom or level one, just a passing look from someone at the office, like, you feel what you feel and those feelings are real and Jesus cares about every inch of them. Yeah, totally. That's so true. Um, okay. Give me nugget number two because I'm talking way too much and I really want to hear what you have to say. No, 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 you're good. This is this is my nugget number two. And this again is going to include some questions. So, okay. So this is the part where Sebastian and Mia are walking They've like kind of just started dating. It's like fun, fun. They come across a um, scene being filmed, like very romantic LA moment. Um, And they're talking about jazz. And Sebastian is talking about this old jazz club that he was like heartbroken because it was converted to a samba tapas place. Very sad. But he says something so fascinating that is like – it was a passing comment, but he says – when recalling the closing of this jazz club, he says, that's LA. They worship everything and they value nothing. Um, And I actually have chills saying that out loud because I'm like, is this our world now? And I was, I was doing some research because I was like, they worship everything and value nothing. What, what does that actually mean? And I found this article on the gospel coalition that's it's written by a guy named Justin Taylor, and it's called Six Definitions of Worship. And the the first one, he took Harold Best's definition, and it says um, it define it defines worship most broadly, reminding us that there's a commonality to all aspects of worship, whether the objects be worthy of our worship or not. And he says worship is the continuous outpouring of all that I am, all that I do, and all that I can ever become in light of a chosen or choosing God. So. I guess in that in that sense, it would basically be saying that's LA. They worship everything. So they they give themselves to everything. They give themselves or they are required to give themselves everything, but they actually value or cherish nothing. And gosh, I just thought that was so interesting because 
I think that we're seeing that that's true. And I, and I don't want to say, like, I don't want to be that person that's like, nothing is sacred anymore. But like, I kind of am finding that that is true. Like, we, whether it's like the over, mm, the overexposure or like abundance of interfacing with anything anymore, like nothing can be special or nothing can be sacred or set apart, which I think is a really crafty way that the enemy has worked um, in our world and in our culture. And so, okay. So basically my, my question for you, Kevin, is, well, first of all, if you have any thoughts, if, if, you know, if that stuck out to you as well, and then like, what is, what is the difference between worshiping something and valuing something? And in that sense is, what comes first, the chicken or the egg? Like, do we worship something because we value it or do we value it because we worship it? I think that Sebastian is making a certain argument here, but I'd like to hear your thoughts. Yeah, I think it's a phenomenal question. Three things, if I can remember them all before I answer. One is OMG. I almost picked that exact same moment. That's crazy. Ha, ha, ha. Uh, the spirit was working that we didn't, you know, because it wouldn't have been working if we had picked the same one. Like God would, <laughs> God would have been less sovereign had we picked the same right. nugget. Uh, <laughs> two, love the gospel coalition and love that you went there for advice. Uh, three, mm-hmm. um, I think that's one of those moments in the movie where uh, it's kind of like how I read the Old Testament where I'm reading about the Israelites having just been delivered by Moses and they're now out of Pharaoh's clutches. And then they're literally like one week into the desert and they're like, it was better back in Egypt. What are we doing here? And and you're just like, are you kidding me, Israelites? Like God just did everything. Moses just put the team on his back for you. Um, and you're like, I would never do that. Um, but then it's like, we totally are the Israelites. At every turn, we make the same mistakes they do. Total depravity. Yeah. And I think that's like, I, that's how I see the Sebastian. I'm like, um, he and I, like, we look at the LA people and we're like, oh, you know, they worship everything and value nothing. Couldn't be me. Wouldn't be me. But I, I totally do this. Like Tim Keller, if you've ever read Counterfeit Gods, he calls our hearts idol factories. Like humans were right. made to worship. Like, we are so good at making uh, things ultimate that could never bear the weight of it. Um, big things and small yeah. things, relationships and video games and morning cups of coffee or Instagram checks or whatever it is. Um mm-hmm. As far as the difference between worship and valuing, I don't know. I mean, like you said, it all depends on your definitions of the terms. Right. Uh, it's it's weird because like the movie sets you up to really want to choose valuing over worship. But just my initial instinct is like worshiping is such a uh, God glorifying idea and term throughout the Bible. And something that I want to mm-hmm. be doing um, and broadening mm-hmm. my definition of what includes worship. But maybe the sentiment from Sebastian is that worship is a little bit more of a passing fleeting emotion that can be there one day and gone the next, whereas values are a little bit more foundational and and slower to change. I mean, what do you think? I don't know. Yeah, I think I think I would say that in his case, like they've they worship things of like they'll give themselves to something, but. I just actually looked up the definition of value, LOL. And Merriam-Webster defines it as the regard that something is held to deserve the importance, worth, or usefulness of something. So I think he's saying if we use these two definitions as they give themselves to anything but don't regard that thing as being useful or worth anything. So I think it's the the quickness and the pervertedness – not pervertedness, I guess, but like the quickness with which we will give, give ourselves to way, away to something even though – or because we we don't value anything. 
Yeah. And that's maybe kind of a unifying thread of just this podcast episode is right. Like uh, Christianity is a long obedience in the same direction yeah. to quote right. Frederick Buechner. Um, right. Like, like we talked, like you've talked about on past episodes, like remember God's faithfulness right. in the past. Um, right. Yeah. That's, that's maybe the difference between valuing and worshiping there. And again, mm -hmm. it's like, it's very easy for me on the podcast with you to sound like I don't do these things, but the reality is like, as soon as we hang up, I'm going to go right back to my life and I'm going to make idols out of things that never deserve to be right. and never could be. And I'm going to reject and rebel against God. Um, mm -hmm. And so, mm -hmm. yeah, I, I don't know. Like that's why with our hearts being so shifty and culture being so shifty, uh, to go back mm -hmm. to the local church, like we need to have a feeding trough in our lives that we can go to mm -hmm. to hear scripture read aloud over us and to lock arms mm -hmm. with other believers, no matter how we're feeling about it, and to sort of yeah. proclaim truth. And, you know, sometimes you feel it and sometimes you don't, but that's okay. That's why we go to church because we don't want to go. Yeah. <laughs> um, it's right. kind of an oxymoron or a paradox. Right. Right. Because if we just did, well, no, that's, that's a redundant point. I was just going to say that kind of goes back to your most recent point was I think we do that with feelings sometimes like we worship them but don't value them and if we and that's why most people ah, I don't know I don't know if this is a generalization but I think that that's a reason why a lot of people maybe don't have themselves or find themselves in a church body because who who actually every morning wakes up on Sunday morning and is like, I'm stoked to be up early. I'm stoked to go serve at my body. Like, I don't know. Like, I don't really know. But the point is not that we feel stoked about it every time. The point is that we're called to it and it's obedience. Yeah, like I'm almost all in on church as anyone you'll find. And I never want to go on Sunday morning. I love to stay mm -hmm. up late Saturday and hit the town. Mm -hmm. And I'm like on the dance floor. I'm with my buddies or or <laughs> I'm not, you know, maybe I don't have super cool plans and I'm just staying up late clowning. But like, right. I never want to get up early. I never want to go. I, I especially don't want to volunteer. Um, mm -hmm. But yeah, like it's um, do you like what do you think the purpose of your life is and how how right. do you think christians actually grow is this something right. that you can kind of diy or is this something that uh no maybe there is some expertise that you can learn from maybe there's something about shepherding that's valuable maybe you can't mm -hmm. take i don't know the lord's supper on your own in a meaningful mm -hmm. or scriptural way so mm -hmm. yeah and, and the reason i'm like so passionate about this like sebastian and jazz is because my pastor is passionate about it and it's flowed to me so i'm kind of living out my mm -hmm. nugget here and uh right. hoping to live it out with other people too because i just yeah. uh you know i'm not any better or more enlightened than anyone for wanting to go to church but uh like i'm just thankful that uh in a year where basically nothing feels like it's going my way in life like mm -hmm. the church has been mm -hmm. such a gift such an unmerited gift and uh yeah. it's god's like promised deliverance and means of growth for us so i don't know i'm really excited about it and like um could talk about it forever i know that's how i feel too which is which is interesting because i actually feel that way but i want to encourage like anybody who's listening to be like ugh, like i just don't feel that way about church and i like don't feel like i have a church home i feel like it's hard for me to make friends and community like know that that was my reality also probably until like a year and a half ago like not even a year and a half ago. I started going to my current church one year ago. And I feel like this is the first time where I'm really like, I'm really seeing the fruit of a church body because I'm actually like, it's twofold because like, I believe that 
the church that I go to now is filled with some of the most incredible God-fearing people on the planet. And also because I decided to like stop making excuses for myself and really get get in it. And we harp on this all the time in on the podcast. But I honestly think that if I were to recommend one thing for anybody vocationally, spiritually, emotionally, in any way, I would just be like, try your best to find a church body that you can be a part of. Um, it's, oh, it's man. Emma, you, of like, infinite value. you just made my heart like so full with that comment because I think something Graham <laughs> and I really wrestle with on our podcast is are we unintentionally or maybe sneaky even intentionally setting ourselves up as like an alternative to the church. I don't think anyone is mm -hmm. listening to Jesus in movies instead of going to church, but we're right. just trying to be keenly aware of the fact that like everybody thinks that they can do this individualistic Christianity thing where they just listen to their favorite pastor, or their favorite sermon or their favorite podcast. Right. And so mm -hmm. like Graham and I have really been like, you know, should we even keep this podcast going? And I wonder if mm -hmm. Nueve has a similar question of like, mm -hmm. is it possible that we're setting ourselves up as an alternative to the church? And the hope is that we can be additive and that we can right, point people right. to it like a taco truck saying, hey, if you liked this, there's like actually a greater place where you can get 10 times the food for free with a lot of other right. people. Um, yeah. And like, that's kind of the goal and to give scripture as a means of doing that. But also to your point about not feeling the way you want to feel about church, like I'm, I'm the same as you. It's only been a year for me at my church and I'm in love with it. And I've never been in love with church going or a church before. And this is what I love yeah. about movies and art is that it helps me to feel the way about things that I want to like C.S. Yeah. Lewis um, has this interview where he basically says he wrote the Chronicles of Narnia because he felt it was like a, an effort to help him feel the way about Jesus that he wanted to, but that he didn't. Mm -hmm. And that's just yeah. like so mind blowing to me. And he has this letter uh, in letters to Malcolm. He says that uh, like he was tracing the sunbeams back to the sun, that the truth and the goodness and the beauty that he could find in stories, whether his own or, or others were able to like point him to their source and to the creator. And so wow. I don't know, that's what I love about movies, whether it's La La Land or, or else like, it can yeah. help me to sort of um, remind like, like uh, I don't know, it can be an Ebenezer that can kind of point mm -hmm. me to like, this is what's true about God and what's true about me, no matter what's going on in my life. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, definitely. And we've had, yeah, kind of a similar conversation and it's not even like you should go to church because it's right. You shouldn't listen to narrow way to Broadway or Jesus in movies as a substitute for church because it's wrong. It's like, no, no, you, it, it's just better. It's just more full. And God would be like so much more – and God can do whatever through whatever. But like if – it is just the best. Like it's just better for us. And it's it's a, a means through which God wants to teach us and use us, aka like what I'm talking about is like the local church. Like it's, it's not because you should be like, okay, is this right or wrong or do I need it or not need it? It's like your life will just be like abundantly more full if – you allow yourself to like become a part of a group of like God-fearing people. That's It's really just kind of plain and simple. I agree with that. Although my one asterisk would be, it could be a slippery slope if you start to make the argument that it's better because then it's like, who gets to decide what better is? Are we able to see what's best for our spiritual growth or is it possible that the Bible knows? I, I totally agree. It's just like, if if that was the only reason you went to church and then you sort of decided, I don't think it actually is better then it's like, well, do you really know that free? I don't know. Um, yeah. Yeah. Well, I guess better meaning in like relative to like, I, I guess what I'm saying is um, 
Christian teaching apart from a local church is like only point whatever percent of what the what a Christian life is, I suppose. Right, right, right. Totally, totally. Kevin, what I would love for you to do, because I think you you said something a little bit ago that really um, hit me of just like allowing scripture to be read aloud um, over us and like to just wash wash upon us in a way that is really um, like amazing and and communal and beautiful. So would you mind picking just like a piece of scripture and just reading it aloud to our listeners before we close? Yeah, I'm going to go back to the Isaiah 53, um, which paralleled Mia's grandmother jumping into the Seine and saying she would do it again. Um, how, you know, maybe the unsuccessful artist's life does kind of feel what it's like or mirror what it's like to be a Christian, but there's nobody who knows that more than Jesus. We have a great high priest who's able to empathize or sympathize with our weaknesses and he knows every temptation. So this is uh, kind of the angsty Jesus passage, Isaiah 53. You might hear it read at Christmas, but um, I think sometimes we just think of Jesus as like this smiley guy that's petting little lambs and going around giving great sermons. And the reality is like he doesn't start doing ministry until he's 30 and dies mm-hmm. at like 33. And so um, maybe like this, do, are we sure we know who this Jesus guy is? Maybe we should let Isaiah 53 give us at least one flavor in the soup that is uh, the person of Jesus. So yeah, I'm just going to read this over you and um, let's see what the spirit uh, reveals about God's nature. Who has believed what he's heard from us and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed for he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by man, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that's led to the slaughter and like a sheep that's before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people, and they made his grave with the wicked. And with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence, there was no deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offering. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. Mm-hmm. Wow. Mm-hmm. Um, when I think about La La Land, here's to the hearts that ache. Here's to the mess we make. Uh, what a gift that we have a savior who deals with us, not according to our sin, but according to the righteousness of his son. Yeah. Amen. Love it. Thanks so much, Kevin. You're the best, man. This has been such a sweet partnership. Um, 
I wish I was a little more thespian so I could hang, but uh, you it's can okay. be. Sanctification is we'll promised. We'll see you next time, <laughs> Kevin. We'll see y'all later. Peace. Thanks so much for listening to this week's episode of the Narrow Way to Broadway podcast. If you enjoyed, please subscribe and share with your friends. We release new episodes every week. If you want to keep up with what we've got going on, head over to Instagram and follow us at InwayBWay. We'll see you next time.